Welcome to the Women Without Kids podcast. I'm your host, Ruby Warrington, and this series has been created from research interviews conducted for my forthcoming book of the same title, which will be out in early 2023. In today's episode, you'll hear me in conversation with Aurelie Athan. Aurelie is a clinical psychologist and a faculty member at Columbia University. And in the summer of 2020, she published a paper on an emerging concept that she terms reproductive identity. I'm going to read a bit from the introduction to her paper here, which I've edited slightly for clarity. But Aurelie writes, Deciding whether or not to become a parent is a developmental milestone in the adult life course. Yet the specific term of reproductive identity is not commonplace. By the end of their lifetime, most everyone will have had a reproductive encounter of some kind with an enduring impact on their personhood in both positive and negative ways. However, unlike other commonly understood self-identifiers, such as race, class, gender, and sexual orientation, an overarching concept of reproductive identity in human development is remarkably absent and in need of its own distinct elaboration. She goes on, significant demographic shifts in fertility and the social ideals of self-realization have impacted how reproduction is performed and how families are structured, particularly for women and LGBTQIA communities. Like gender and sexuality, reproduction is a healthy aspect of human expression to be openly explored, destigmatized, and self-authored. Okay, so Aurelie's paper was published around the same time that I was working on my proposal for Women Without Kids. And like her, I found myself grappling with ways to frame the confluence of factors that has contributed to and continues to shape shifting attitudes to reproduction globally. For example, for heterosexual cisgendered people, becoming a parent has pretty much been considered a given. But whether it's due to people having more options about how their lives play out, difficulties meeting a suitable co-parent, economic struggles, fears about the climate, or more and more people experiencing fertility issues, this is no longer the case. As a result, and as I have tried to do in my book, Aurelie's work seeks to acknowledge that not having children is in fact as quote unquote normal and valid as having kids. And at the same time, parenthood has become an option for people who have traditionally been excluded from the narrative about who is supposed to be a parent. By introducing the concept of reproductive identity, already is giving people from across the spectrum of gender and sexuality the permission to self-identify when it comes to their procreative potential. As you can imagine, I was very excited to discover that this concept was entering the academic discourse at the same time that I was starting work on my manuscript. And so, of course, I wanted to speak to Aurelie about how she came to this work and what she thinks are the implications for an expanded perspective on human beings' procreative potential as we move forward. This is the resulting conversation, and I hope you find it as enlightening as I did. Aurelie, thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me, Ruby. <laughs> um, I was just expressing to you how very excited I was when I discovered your research and your paper on this concept of reproductive identity. Just a little bit of background for you, I suppose. I 
knew from around age five that I didn't want to be a mother. I knew that parenting wasn't in my future and I've always felt like such an anomaly. Um, and it's not really something I've ever held as front and center of my personage. It was just a, a private sense, I suppose, of, well, that's different. And, this, and behind that, maybe there's something wrong with me. <laughs> and so this is partly, you know, why I was drawn to um, dive into this subject in depth in my book. So discovering this concept of reproductive identity is, has been really exciting to me on a personal and a professional level. And I would love to hear in your own words what you mean by reproductive identity. What does this term um, speak to? Well, thank you first for not only inviting me, giving me your background and, and also inviting a conversation in a, a more inclusive and larger scope. I'm often, you know, doing podcasts or interviews on matrescence, which is the other theory that I've been trying to develop further. Um, so in this case, once I started to hear the stories of diversity, even within the transition to motherhood or parenthood, right? That there were many, many um, types of experiences and many ways into the experience, through the experience and on the other side. Um, I, I wondered about if we were doing sort of a disservice by not including also those who've, um, you know, been childless by choice or involuntarily. And that I knew intrinsically that everyone has a, a psychological relationship to their reproductive experiences, regardless of what other identities they hold in the world. And that the literature was often far too focused on women who had children. So there's that gender component and then that um, reproductive line as well. So my work was really, and by the way, in my research, I often as well um, um, mask the other identities of folks um, in terms of gender, sexuality, all of that. And I would hear very similar psychological unfoldings uh, meaning that there were these um, periods of crisis, periods of not knowing, then redefining their identities as they moved through it. And well, while that was universal, there were sort of peculiarities depending on what path they were on, but there was this universal life cycle um, transition that was occurring regardless of what you know, the outcome was, whether you ended up becoming a parent or not. Um, and so, you know, what do I mean by that? I mean, folks who went on an infertility journey and never actually culminated in a live birth, those who foster children in their care, who um, were not, um, you know, genetically their own, those who came into children via marriage, those who lost children, had children and lost them through illness, um, death or divorce. And then on the other side of that, think about all the diverse pathways that end up with um, also being childless by choice. And then all the, the fluidity that can happen in which those identities can actually intersect and um, cross over depending on where you are in your life cycle. So I just wanted to start with, you know, your audience kind of thinking about, wow, there's a lot of diversity here. And with that in mind, then that means that we have you know, lots of individuals uh, in the world who 
have a reproductive potential, and I want to emphasize that word, that it's no longer a given. Um, it was culturally and also in a way physiologically for heterosexual folks, but you know the the um, sexual revolution, the uh, the bringing in of technologies, reproductive technologies, inceptive and contraceptive, the pill and things like IVF, you know, and social norms advancing, you know, the rights of LGBTQ um, individuals through, like, let's say, marriage um, laws and all of that. That has, you know, brought you know, this wonderful flourishing of diversity, much of it already existed and family compositions were always diverse, but we just sort of um, more kind of socially caught up to allowing them to be uh, normative and acceptable. So now we're in this really kind of radical time where families, how we define them, how we build them, create them is, um, very multifaceted. So I felt like we needed to get a bigger term. And so reproductive um, blank was really always <laughs> kicking around in my, my brain. I just didn't know what to marry it with. And, and reproductive was also kind of a problematic word because it, it holds, um, you know, a history uh, with it. And it also means actually reproducing, let's say, even with your own genetic material. But I, I kept that half uh, intentionally because I felt like we needed to build on the linguistic base um, that we already had. So to build on things like reproductive rights, reproductive autonomy, um, that lineage needed to continue until we had new words and a new linguistic base that could be maybe better uh, suited to this diversity. But the other half, um, what do I marry, you know, reproductive with identity became very clear almost immediately because even in the work on my trusts, I was really listening for the identity shifts and how people made sense of what was occurring for them uh, in the reproductive space. And so that marriage of reproductive identity then led to a lot of research and trying to find it, find it in the literature, just find that term. And it was very strange. I could not find it. I sometimes saw reproductive identities, plural. I certainly found identity formation for um, women experiencing infertility, identity formation for same-sex couples undergoing undergoing, IVF, uh, or, you know, pursuing surrogacy, there was all this sort of um, cannibalization, right, into smaller groups of their identity transformation. But I couldn't find that term. And so that pointed me to a lacuna in the literature. And when you think about the big eight identities that they teach in school, or that's in the literature, you know, age, race, sexuality, gender, ability, so on and so forth. These were central dimensions of human experience that a lot of information and education 
has been made available so that people know how to explore their racial identity development or their gender identity development, so on and so forth. Um, so to me, the work is first and foremost, before we even define it, which was your original question, is just name it as something that should belong in this, in these main pillars of self understanding and identifiers. Mm -hmm. So I'll stop there and then I can get more concrete with how I would break down to define it. But I, is that helpful? Oh, extremely. And it's just absolutely fascinating. Um, perhaps it's a little bit of a tangent, but if you could very quickly talk, sort of let us know what matrescence is and, and if there was a specific moment in your work there where you realized that this was a, um, a rich theme of further research for you. Oh, yes. I can remember exactly where I was and two very important nodal points. So matrescence, I can define that very clearly. Matrescence like adolescence. It is the um, transition to motherhood that some women undergo. Um, and it. I use that sort of public health slogan or chiropractic that took 10 years to really develop um, to get someone into a quick understanding of it. So it's the, and I've expanded its definition from the originator. This is not me. Um, this comes from Dana Raphael's work in the 70s. She's another Columbia um, professor, a medical anthropologist who also coined the term doula. Hmm. And she really brought this term, um, atrescence, an old new rite of passage. Um, she studied things like childbirth. And so the midwifery community is aware of it but was really looking at the physiological transition and said something that the time for a mother to give birth to herself or for her psychology in a way to catch up with what happened to her needs more study. It is not clear when that happens. In other words, the childbirth might happen, but the person's sort of self-awareness of what is happening to them as a result of it may take uh, longer. And so that stayed dormant for since the 70s, really. It wasn't picked up other than in, in, in childbirth circles um, until I found it. I remember exactly where I was, where I was looking for a word that could be more expansive because in my training as a clinical psychologist, I was being taught in the mental health, the maternal mental health paradigm, which focused on uh, psychopathology, things like postpartum depression, which was really a cultural meme, though it was coming out of its invisibility and shame and stigma around talking about being and having um, distress in, in motherhood, de depression and anxiety, uh, I was still not really understanding well, what's normative, you know, what would be considered before we diagnose something as, as you know, dysfunctional. What are, what are the normative expectations? And I went to developmental psychology, which typically would study that. I found nothing. I did find, no, not nothing. I, I, will, I will go back to that. I found quite a bit in um, maternal um, motherhood studies and feminist studies that looked at the institution of motherhood, but the sort of psychological transition was written about by a few maternal developmentalists, actually some very critical thinkers in psychoanalysis. I don't know why I said nothing, uh, but it wasn't in the more kind of conventional training that we would get as students. You'd really have to look for it. And, um, and so that gave the aha for me that it needed to be developed more. And then I brought in my own um, 
my own training in psychology, existentialism, and um, psycho-spiritual psychology, which looked at the positive potential, like a post-traumatic um, post-traumatic growth, for example, that one can have a crisis, but one can also grow from that and resilience literature. And so I talked about instead the biopsychosocial, um, political, you know, spiritual transformation. And that's why I say um, matrescence like adolescence, because it's not just a physiological experience. If you think back to your time in adolescence, as your body was changing hormonally and, and physically, you were also changing your peer groups, your friend circles, you were awakening to um, justice, social justice, the unfairness in the world. You were maybe economically asking to contribute now to a household as you were becoming an adult. And you also had big questions about your meaning and purpose in the world, whether the religious systems you were raised in, um, you believe in them. And so this identity work, which is the whole enchilada of you looking at all of those domains of change that are happening to you, um, you know, is, is the work until you sort of settle into a new selfhood. Um, and, and we give permission to adolescents to do that, to have their storm and their strife. Um, and can what look like going crazy on the way to adulthood, we know adolescents now is, is normative, that transition is expected. And before actually adolescence wasn't even a concept or a word in the literature. So I tried to bring matrescence to do the very same thing. Which it does so, so, so well. And it's actually really helping me, <clears throat> helping crystallize for me a part of the shame I have felt around not non-motherhood. I feel like there's part of me that hasn't matured or developed or gone through what well, part of me hasn't experienced matrescence and therefore I'm not somehow a fully mature woman, even at the age of 45. <laughs> and so just the very idea that there's, um, there are other ways to think about that transition or that non-transition or perhaps that transition without actually becoming a mother to a, to a, to a child or even a biological child I think that's just such an interesting area for an individual to consider for themselves. And I, I shall be myself deeply as I'm working on this book. I'm very curious. You mentioned that some of these ideas started bubbling up in the 70s, which makes sense. I just finished reading Adrian Rich's book, Of Woman Born, for, some, for my research, um, which actually came out the year that I was born. <laughs> but I'm curious as to why you think this has not been a subject for a deeper discussion or research until now. What is it about this transitional period that we're going through now that is um, that makes it the right time for this to be coming to the surface? Well, we're definitely, you know, in some kind of uh, shift where we can hear it because I was even doing matrescence for a decade and it, it got picked up um, when I went on the lecture circuit. And, and, and since then, it's just unbelievable how much it has spread. It, it's, um, it really has seeded um, a movement. It's, it's, you know, people needed to be ready to hear it and the zeitgeist had to, to shift. So I think a number of things allowed that. And I will respond to the comment that you made before as well about transition to quote unquote non-motherhood. 
but before I do, the culture had to understand kind of um, a few things. First of all, I attribute a lot to the wellness movement that started, which was to not only look at risk, but to also see how do we cultivate um, our, a, a, a wellness approach or our well-being so that we could put in language like growth and development and adult development, frankly. Um, you know, what the wellness movement, movement is masking is adult development. There's, there is a, just a lack of psychological models during that time period. It sort of focuses a lot on adolescence, emerging adulthood, you know, started to come, come of age. Then we have aging, death and dying, but a lot of the middle passage, other than like your midlife crisis kind of stuff, um, is absent. And so there's a lot of literature looking at, oh, adults do continue to grow. Their identity work is not just something that's one and done. It's ever evolving. And these questions of generativity and contribution and uh, all of that is ongoing. And that's what I'm going to reference about whether our generativity and contribution um, to the next generation assumes that it's children. You see, that's a given from another age, but now we also saw um, the allowance of also adults to not only, um, you know, the human potential growth movement and the rise of individualism and spending time on oneself also produced and reproduced other goods and values in the world, right? Whether they be companies or movements, um, we can and do nurture other things in our care. Um, and however, for women, which is the next movement, it often was merely, um, not merely, but, you know, it was thought that the, the, the private sphere of the home, home care, home economics, raising children is really where their contribution was most valued, even though it was never paid. So it's undervalued, right? Um, and, and so I think the, movement of women being educated and entering the workforce, um, the, you know, the waves of feminism that brought women into contribution outside of the home is another reason we're ready to hear something like this. And also more and more women delaying entry into childbearing and not um, entering childbearing altogether. So, you know, they had time to develop themselves and to write and contribute. So it means that, you know, professors can are women now, doctors are women, you know, researchers are women, journalists are women, news, news folks, you know, every sector, in fact, is being feminized. In fact, every sector, there are more women now in most parts of the developing world, actually, and, and, and I was going to say, um, who, who, hold the ranks of, of higher education and professions, but also um, just education in general. They don't often hold leadership positions and the most power, but there is this shift. And then we have the Me Too movement where women are speaking up about um, things that were typically stigmatized or invisible or shamed. So all of those things I think allowed for you know, the rise of individualism. Um, we have, uh, you know, the women's movement, uh, sexuality 
women and gender, the sort of trifecta of, of social progress in this area has really allowed these curiosities to come forth. So with that, um, you know, we could hear it. We couldn't hear it before. And I think we had to hear first, by the way, the transition to motherhood first, because of course of the marriage of um, uh, womanhood and motherhood, you know, as being this one in the same thing. And if we start to then disaggregate that and we can just talk about human development, then it becomes the option to not become a parent, right? Men had that option before, very much so. And also, we also have those in the LGBTQ community who didn't have the option to become parents, right? So it's, it's, it's that one too, coming into the circle of forming families. Um, and, and, and now we can all sort of share in these um, once given things that were only for certain people. Now we can all sort of participate in it and have a seat at the table, more or less, right? Mm. And, and and like you say, sort of cutting both ways, participate or choose not to participate in these two, which which have seen which have been very sort of it's been a very much a binary between like parents and non-parents. And I think that a, I remember having a bit of a light bulb moment in the, the early days of beginning my research for this book when I sort of and it came out of my work with Sober Curious, which looks at the sort of gray area on the spectrum of addiction, particularly as it comes to alcohol abuse. And I just thought to myself, wait, isn't there a spectrum for desire and aptitude for parenthood also? And this reminds me of something, another term that's in your, that's in your paper, which is around reproductive orientation, which again, orientation is something we've heard a lot more about in the past couple of decades, few decades around sexuality and gender. And I think it speaks very closely to what I started to think about in terms of this spectrum. And then all of the different factors which may place to determine where somebody might find themselves on this spectrum, what I just simply called the baby spectrum. <laughs> and things like sexuality, gender, but also personality, economic status, um, you know, race, cultural expectations, all sorts of things can determine where you might, your, your um yeah, your aptitude for parenthood. Um, could you talk a little bit more about this idea of reproductive orientation? Yeah, absolutely. So that is a really great um, segue to now defining, in a way, um, the evolving, emerging definition of reproductive identity, I think, is best captured with reproductive orientation first, which um, parallels a lot of the writing in gender and sexuality of, you know, is this identity, is this orientation? Um, and you started with a non-binary thing. So that's mm -hmm. where I started to. The more I just talk to people, um, they are full of paradoxes and spectrums. You know, they, uh, they, it is not either or. And I thought that we needed to heal the split around that. Um, and it shows up in all sorts of things, like, I don't know, a, a child's birthday party. Do you invite people who don't have children? You know, would they want to be there? You know, this, it plays out in all sorts of awkward ways, you know, or on a hiring committee, you know, can, should I disclose that I want uh, children um, in the next year or two? Will I be hired? So 
the fact that a lot of these things are also invisible, they're internal, and you'll never know where a person sort of stands on these things quite in the same way of, let's say, other identities that might actually be visible. Um, so we first start with the idea of reproductive orientation as, well, what is at least sort of a, a way I might lean or navigate, you know, a decision based on kind of where I, where I, I either, let's start again. It, it is an orientation in itself means it orients me. It kind of locates me, right, where I am, at, at least internally. And a lot of times in the literature, is it desire or action, right? Is it how I feel about something or whether I act upon it? And that is really the million dollar question, but we can at least first start with breaking it down this way, that that your orientation can be made up of a few kind of concepts. First, directionality. If it is a spectrum, do you more sort of lean in the direction of wanting children or not wanting children. And you can also change that language to wanting to be child-free, right? Mm -hmm. So that it's not a negation. That's where mm -hmm. language can be very difficult. Which direction do you want to go? And some people go all the way to one extreme or the other um, in its extremity, right? It's very much one direction or the other. And others might find themselves somewhere in between. And it's sort of a self-portrait of the moment, by the way, because you should probably do this exercise every six months to a year or two, you know, to just check in. The next would be the intensity, which is how intense do you feel about that? So someone may say, yes, definitely want kids. Um, but I'm only sort of, you know, a three out of five. It's not very intense for me right now. I maybe because I'm in my early twenties and I haven't really thought about, I don't have a sense of readiness. Um, that's one kind of quick assessment, um, you know, and, and by the way, you may be ambivalent too. You may be in that sort of in-between space, not really sort of sure. And I'm not even sure that the spectrum counts if you're completely a-reproductive, just like asexual. There is the desire for either is just absent. It's not something you really think about. We cannot make the assumption that everybody is um, thinking about it or made to think about it, though I would argue that if you are socialized as a girl in this world, you are reminded of it a lot more often um, and asked about it a lot more often. And that's why there's a literature on kind of procreative consciousness in males and how to develop that because it's often not even asked, you know, you don't ask uh, a boy, you know, do you want to have a family? And you certainly don't even require responsibility if a family was generated. So, after what I'm getting to is also this idea of centrality, right? Meaning um, how core and salient is it to your sense of self? So a lot of times I'll give someone an exercise that looks kind of like a, um, a bullseye where you'd put all your other identities, you know, everything that we talked about. And even if we were to just do the big three, I'm hoping I can make uh, reproduction part of the sexuality and gender um, um, dyad is, you know, where would you put that? in the center or in the periphery, because that's when you're starting to get a sense of how much distress a person is likely to have once you start to think about their 
you know, directionality, um, intensity, and centrality, um, and, and also how fixed or fluid do they think it's going to be? Like, do they think it will change over time? I mean, the classic response to someone who wants to opt out of parenthood is, oh, you'll change your mind. Um, but that, that's not helpful. Um, when I think about fluidity, I think more about do, can we give room for people to explore? Because um, people also do like to hear that you're certain. You know, do you have the ability for um, embracing uncertainty or allowing for um, certainty when it's right? So all that together might help someone sort of orient their decisions around or to disclose in safe ways to people that matter to them, whether it's a partner you may be on a date with uh, and considering to make a, a life partner um, or not, um, or your healthcare provider, that they don't have these assumptions that you, you share the same orientation. That's, that's a critical component. And in, in a lot of ways, people are almost outed to use that kind of language. Um, in a way that doesn't feel good, right? People just ask, uh, especially with reproductive life, people feel like they have carte blanche to ask, you know, whether it's a couple saying, when are you gonna have the baby? Or, um, you know, any other, any other questions around that, that it's sort of, you're, you, ha you should be an open book. When we don't really ask those sort of personal questions um, in such an indelicate manner in other places. And so, and on top of it, people also don't think about these things until they're in crisis, right? That's when it really comes out um, or are asked of it in a caring capacity. So I wanted people to have a, a kind of self-assessment tool to be able to check in with themselves, whether they want to share it or not, to maybe show where they are developmentally in that process. Mm. Yes, it, you, you've. I've, I've read you write about um, the importance of how it's emerged, how the importance of being able to self-identify when it comes to, for example, sexuality and gender being actually very important to people's mental, emotional, and also physical well-being. And I think what you're describing here is a similar um, process of giving somebody permission to self-identify in this area so that they can become sure of their own position in those situations where they may be challenged or there might be assumptions projected onto them. They can be more sure where they stand. And I wonder if you could talk a bit more about um, what, might, what might be occurring for somebody who doesn't have that permission to self-identify in this area of reproductive identity or reproductive orientation in that sort of um, nebulous like I sort of described at the beginning of this call, know, knowing that I didn't have this desire and feeling like that may, meant that there was something wrong with me, this desire to become a parent, I mean, or to have to be a mother. Well, yeah, it's very distressing um, when the larger culture doesn't have allowance for that or language for that. Um, I think before we talk about the endpoint choice, just being in the confusion of not knowing whether one does or doesn't want, you know, being in that sort of um, questioning place. I think search and questioning and quest and self-discovery is both an enlivening and a distressing experience. And people do it in all other domains when they're searching for their spirituality, their sexuality, 
um, their, their, their gender, all of that. So I do want to give, I don't want to rescue everybody from the fact that this is a, a developmental experience that, that, that does, uh, you know, create some, some discomfort, but, but I do want to heal the fact that when it's done unsupported or it's done in a culture um, that has stigmatizes, shames and blames and marginalizes ones that don't fit the, what they consider normal, um, then, then we really do see distress. And there's all sorts of people who study marginalized identities um, as, as distressful. And so I wanted to give the language as well. Um, I mean, you know, there are people who, who, who study women without children and the distress and the stigma and the mar marginalization that they have. Um, so just first, the idea of search is, is critically important. People will at some point in their lives probably encounter or confront this period of, of questioning. And, and then they also have to live in a social world. They both create themselves from their, their social world. And so they should analyze the influences. Why do they feel this way about what they desire or want to act upon? Where did that come from? I ask people who are sure about wanting to become parents, why? Why? Where did that come from? Who told you that? Um, and then afterwards, you know, this idea of feeling verified in the world, you know, the self-verification, right? That I am how I'm being seen is really important. Um, you know, you, you go through a process of self-identification and if there's a discrepancy between also how you behave in the world and how you feel about yourself, right? That might be how you dress, how you talk, how you present yourself, and also how people see you. That, that discrepancy is really at the heart of a lot of um, uh, unwellness. You know, people want to feel in, in, in alignment and have self-compassion as well and, and self-acceptance. And so that's an ultimate goal. We don't always get there, but we can at least certainly start to get less discrepant. And 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 that's where I think reproductive identity comes in versus orientation, which is a more internal process, which is the identifiers or the social, the social identifiers, the categories of social identity, of group belonging, right? You're either in this camp or you're not, or you're in this camp is the thing that we're, I think we need to do the most work because the, the, they don't even know. I mean, society doesn't even know about all of these invisible groups that exist within just the kind of binary of parents and non-parents. You know, there's a lot of warring across even those two divides. We even see it now in COVID, you know, and how, let's say, employees and startups are being treated with and without children, you know, when really it's a much more kind of nuanced um, thing. It's not about, uh, choosing a category, but really kind of understanding what's, what's operating underneath that. So uh, I, I think for, depending on what path you're on based on your reproductive orientation, I would really recommend for folks to find support from people who really know that path well, you know, um, sometimes, uh, you know, People assume just because someone's doing postpartum work that they really understand infertility work. I think those are can be very different things. 
Um, there are, there are um, support groups and, and readings and writings and facilitators who can midwife the um, transition to non-parenthood by choice, um, single mothers by choice, you know, all of these different kinds of identities that they do have their own transitionary developmental processes and they exist even if society doesn't name them. Mm. How important is it to find new names for these identities? As someone, you know, I've, I've worked as a journalist for so many years and it's almost become a default kind of way of looking at things for me to sort of name something or give it a headline, you know? Um, and I wonder what sorts of terminology we might start see come out in the in the coming years as this conversation becomes more um comes more into the mainstream i suppose um even it's interesting we're speaking this week i think um there's been quite a lot of reports the new census figures in the u.s came out and we've had the biggest slowdown or drop off in um birth rate or kind of population growth in over a century and so i can only see this conversation coming much, much more into the mainstream. And so, yeah, I wonder about what sort of terminology or names or categories might kind of come through. Do you think that's important or is the most important thing for us to just have, be able to have an open conversation and a recognition that there are so, so there is such diversity when it comes to reproductive identity? Hmm. Yeah, I think it's both and, and I think you're, you're right on the pulse and saying that, you know, um, the the language is in fact being de- created even faster than we we realize. You know, just like with um, sexuality and gender and uh, pronouns and self identifiers, that often it comes from the ground up. But it very rarely comes from academia or top down sources. It's really in the lived experience of people where they start to name themselves. Like I I always remember when I first heard things, and it was always from. Um, you know, from from the ground up, you know, whether mm-hmm. a woman who um, called themselves an independent parent um, because single mother was just so loaded, you know, it didn't feel uh, there was such a sort of um, stigma and bias that they didn't um, want to be seen through that lens. And so they they renamed themselves in a way that felt more empowering. On the other hand, someone else um wanted the word single mother to reclaim it and demonstrate ways in which it can look different. So language is important in, I think, a few ways. The absence of language is terrible. Uh, people need words to be able to explain their experience. That has been the ma- power of matrescence. Um, and even what I think what reproductive identity can do in and of itself, um, they need frameworks. And then after that, um, the proliferation of sort of more nuanced language is, I think, I think both necessary to imbue respect and being validated. So I always check in with people and ask how they, how do they see themselves? How do they want to be called? Because uh, let's think of the word um, spinster, you know, Mm. right. Or, um, or barren. Uh, Those are, those are words that would have been commonly used during another period of time that really um, limited uh, people's selfhoods and, and their own and their their own you know well being. 
So I really do always check and say, how do you see them yourself? It also, words and language can preclude participation. So if you name something this way, the, the other person on the outside says, oh, I therefore don't belong here. But I think it's also important to get under words even deeper, which is this idea of belonging, which is what people really want to feel, you know, that kind of um, standard idea of not only being um, invited to the party, but asked to dance. So the diversity, equity, and inclusion, it's, it's that they want to really have a voice um, in, in the moment. Where it can get fuzzy, and I'm just observing this, I don't think I have anything particularly, you know, that insightful to say is, do we then get caught up in terminology and follow the letter of the law rather than the spirit of the law, such that um, we try and create seemingly neutral words and spaces, but is it really neutral ever? You know, people have very strong feelings about um, how they're called, how they see themselves. And for example, um, you know, I know that there's kind of a parallel like this with mothers uh, who are wondering if they can call themselves pregnant mothers or women, or now that we also know, you know, there's transgender parenting as well. Is that non-inclusive? But I believe that every, every niche, you know, and I use that word in an ecological sense, has its own culture and creates its own words and terminologies and, and viewpoints and lenses. And by virtue of just doing that, it excludes some and includes others. So how do we talk across difference? How can we in, invite and have a spacious place where we all um, can live the way we hope, hope to self-identify and have it be respected by others? I don't know if there are any universal words that can do that for us. Um, I'm still looking for them. <laughs> Me too. Uh, <laughs> people are really creative. I mean, the stuff that's happening at the level of pronouns and all of that is, I, I get excited about it, but I don't think it's my business to study it. I really do actually believe it's also uh, linguists because language is evolving all the time. And what I get really excited about is that with every generation who uses the new language, they look, will, will look back at the old language and maybe us who've been um, burdened by the old linguistic base find the new words funny, but then the new generations born into it will look back and look at ours as the funny ones, just like Spinster mm -hmm. and Marin. Mm -hmm. And so where, where it's going is alive. It's alive it's new and it's taking us. I mean, in the same way, way that even queer was something that was from the, uh, you know, ground up as a way of empowering language that then the mainstream and academia and all that take that those words on um, in dialogue. So that's my answer to that. I don't know. Yeah. Well, no, I'm, I'm very much in the process. This is, it's, it's very interesting as a non-parent I've, I found it very difficult to find words to describe my situation or the way that I feel about my story around this. Um, I've never liked childless because I don't feel like anything is missing from my life. I also don't like child free. It sounds too frivolous um, and too upbeat actually for my experience of being a non-mother because I'm having dug deeper into my why. There's a lot of pain there. There's a lot of intergenerational trauma along the mother line in my family um, that I believe is very much wrapped up in my decision slash inner knowing that that wasn't my path. And so child-free 
sort of negates a lot of that for, that experience for me. I remember I discovered the medical term for a woman who's never given birth is nulli para. Mm-hmm. I had never, never heard this word. And I am a linguist and I have lived this path for 45 years and I couldn't believe that that term isn't better known, actually. So I'm sort of, I'm sort of reclaiming nulli para for myself, although it does sound, it sounds so kind of um, medical um, and clinical, which it obviously is. But I'm still on the, I'm still on the lookout for the right terminology to describe my path, because even non-mother, non-parent, they're, they're, neg- they're negatives there's a sense again that something is missing or something hasn't happened. And so it's quite difficult to name something which is, a, is does not exist, has not occurred. <laughs> yeah, and to that end, you know, I, I, I too struggle when I was um, kind of trying to coin a term like postpartum flourishing instead of just depression, you know, you say, oh, well, if I use postpartum, it only means after. If I use peripartum, if I use perinatal, it comes from the biomedical linguistic base. And you start to realize that every field has um, its linguistic base, you know, bars from Latin, it does this or that. Mm-hmm. And so in a way, it's, 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 you never win. And that's what I have discovered to sort of surrender to the fact that what is to your point originally, I think the most useful thing is the exercise of attempting to find the words that fit for you and to do that exploration. And sometimes I wonder if my lab's next job is to really just aggregate, you know, there needs to be an aggregation of all the words so that someone can sit and go, oh, you know, it's sort of like God shopping, you know, you kind of say, oh, this one fits for me. I like, you know, for you, if Nolly Paris fits the bill, despite of, you know, where it's coming from, or it sounds this way, it is, why does, does that fit for you? What does it do, you know, and the, what exactly, I love the way you modeled that for your listeners, which is child-free doesn't feel right, um, child-less doesn't feel right, and also, how about a sentence, you know, why do we have to get it down to a word? Mm. Um, that, that's the sort of real, um, the real challenge to the culture is will you sit down and listen uh, and read, read the story, not just the cover, because the minute, you know, not everybody likes talking to me because I, I talk in a more narrative way. We, we tell the story of us. I don't have a label for you. And, and once we hear, like you said, the, the, the trauma, the, all of this that comes from, from this deep, Um, unfolding, this becoming, that's a process-oriented language. And I've never, other than words that have essence in it, like adolescence or transcendence, Mm. we need process-oriented words is where I would land. And usually they're paragraphs. They're not Mm. (laughs) single ones. (laughs) So my, um, yeah, my my kind of journalistic attempt to get everything down into a headline is maybe not going to work (laughs) for this one. There's slightly more complexity here that needs to be taken into account. Um, I'm wondering, what's your... um, this is a new seam of research and a very rich one and very thriving, I'm sure, and flourishing, to use that word, which I love. Um, how, what's your sort of intention for how this terminology, how this concept is sort of embraced and applied? Is it largely about um, 
speaking to clinicians and psychotherapists and people in that sort of field about, you know, utilizing it in their practice? Or is it about changing the culture or shaping the culture or a bit of both? Like, what do you, what, what do you hope, how do you hope to see this um, sort of develop in the wider world? Thank you. Yes, a little bit of both. So I think I've come to terms with the fact that I'm really a theorist at heart and, um, you know, that I like to create frameworks um, uh, of understanding and then, you know, let the framework sort of um, be disseminated. So my my first hope is that the the idea and the word just gets out there and that it can be disseminated the way Metrosens did so that the culture picks it up and starts to do things with it and play with it. Um, academically speaking, I hope that people find the paper and the idea. And of course, you know, I'm, my next step is to create a measurement tool and an assessment tool, um, both for to be able to study, but also for, um, you know, medical professionals and otherwise to be able to use it to assess others with it so that they don't have assumptions. They really just kind of sit and speak with and maybe even give this little bit of tool um, but I think it's going to take other people to, you know, that's what you do with a sort of debut article like that. Then after that is you hope that other researchers and thinkers will take it up and start to, you know, research the reproductive identity of mothers with postpartum psychosis, right? Yeah, uh, for this population, that population, and then see if it holds water, um, if there are any kind of universalities. So my hope is dissemination, largely because of the way that the pandemic happened. Um, I wasn't able to do that, but, but also because of this critical nodal point, like you brought up with, um, you know, falling birth rates, which was a trend anyway, but now has just sort of like accelerated and, you know, new anti-natalisms that are in the world mm -hmm. is for people to start to use it as a lens to observe the natural world, to see why and how can I interpret this from this place? So my line of thinking is there was already reproductive health. You know, the World Health Organization defines this you know, in the 70s, 90s, and so forth, marries it with human rights, we get a reproductive rights movement. Then we have, um, you know, marginalized groups, women of color, you know, the reproductive justice movement, Sister Song, who come in and talk about, it's really not only, um, it's if, when, how, that we have the right um, that all communities to opt in or out because reproductive rights also got sort of distorted at some points with, with um, abortion and opting out, right? But there were communities that valued um, children and having maybe even many children and to do it with dignity and respect. And that we also had, um, you know, bias into who we wanted to re reproduce in the world, right? And so the justice, when it got married also with social justice movements to really think about the systemic oppressions, the way in which, you know, our reproductive healthcare system is just uh, abhorrent. It doesn't. It doesn't um, treat everybody um, well. We see the black maternal mortality um, issues here in the United States alive and well. So reproductive identity for me is a little bit more intrapsychic. Um, it 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 sits on a justice, rights, and health frameworks, but it really is at the end of the day about the internal inner work that people psychologically um, do in a rich way, in a sometimes um, private way is not the best word because it shouldn't be an isolated activity, but to be done in a, in a psychological way. 
Um, and that that's really where I hope it ends up is in the hands of, of those who honor psychological mindedness in life, whether they're mental health practitioners or not, to realize that people have a deep psychological um, rich set of emotions um, that they have around their reproductive experiences. You know, ask someone to tell a story about their first menstruation. You know, who, who was there for you? Who was not? What messaging did you get? Um, how did that start to shape how you moved through other reproductive experiences and choices? Um, that, that, that is where I'd really like it to go, that we have a, um, an acknowledgement that reproductive life is, is more complicated than, than we honor it. Mm, beautiful. You touched on so many other pieces there as we're coming towards the end of our conversation that I hope will give people lots to think about and take away and sort of research and begin to talk about among their own communities on their own as well. Final question before we um, wrap up. I'm always very curious as to why you personally are so drawn to this work. Why is this such a, a part of your life and, and such a, of such sort of intellectual, spiritual interest to you, this subject? Mm. Well, thanks for asking. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it certainly um, is going to be with me for life. You know, we all sort of look for maybe our calling, if not our contribution, or what's, what's going <laughs> to hold our attention, maybe just that um, long enough. So I, I'd say it started early on um, where I actually uh, grew up with women who experienced a lot of reproductive cancers. And I saw, um, I, I saw the suffering of what happened there. And all, then, you know, fast forward, as a psychologist, I was far, and religion minor, I was far more interested in the existential, spiritual, and philosophical um, questions that humanity had about who am I in the world, where's my meaning and purpose, and so w I couldn't find them often in standard models of psychology, um, particularly women's psychology, they were often on, on male models, and so um, when I started studying women's, um, you know, transitions to reproductive experiences like cancer, because that was sort of in the water um, that I grew up in, I really heard, you know, for at least the survivors, um, you know, this really big reorientation that was just so profound. Um, really, they, they gained a clarity um, around their priorities, around um, how they wanted to live their life that was sort of enviable and that we all could hope for without um, getting such, getting a diagnosis of illness. Don't we all want that, right? We right. want to have these epiphanies and these senses of alignment um, and knowing who we are and, and how we want to um, move in the world. Um, but there was also a lot of like lack of education. A lot of them complained about sort of not knowing their body, very little body literacy, very little sexual health education. So this kind of absence. And fast forward again, you know, my mentor, Lisa Miller too, she, you know, I was studying psycho-spiritual development with her. I believe she was undergoing at the time her own um, considerations of forming a family and, and said, you know, I wonder if this is operating when you, in, in have children yourself. She was more studying children and adolescents, but what about the adults? And I knew somehow instinctually right in that moment that that was absolutely right, that, you know, in the hinges of life, like she, she would say too, 
and not only on the way out of life, but on the way in. Um, and this capacity for life bearing, this capacity for um, creating creating life, um, that that's really interesting. And whether that was just going to happen without any issue. In fact, um, the family members who, at least one of them who had a reproductive cancer was also undergoing infertility treatment at the time. So those two things were married, this life and death, this real deep desire to create life that then confronted a death experience, a death-defying experience. And so um, that's when it really just, I went, wow. And the minute I started talking to, at the time, mothers, um, I just realized I felt like I was holding the dragon's tail that I, I thought to myself, if this is so much bigger, this is about um, our reproductive capacity and our relationship to it and what is its meaning. Um, we, we have a, a consciousness and, and we are confronted with this awesome dimension of life. And how do we do that? How is that supported? So it's not just a life cycle transition. It's not just something that happens. It's actually transformational, no matter what the end game is this confrontation with our reproductive capacity, this encounter with it is awesome mm. and requires humility of the individual and of the culture that's supporting it or else we're going to do damage and have done damage. Mm. Thank you so much for sharing. And again, I just had another epiphany about my own journey while you were speaking, which is that I don't know. I think that what you just said gave me a newfound respect for my capacity to not reproduce what has gone before in my family, actually, mm. and gratitude that I actually am of a generation where I have that choice. Um, it's huge. Oh, thank you so much. This has been absolutely fascinating. And I will um, include links where people can discover more about your work. Um, I'm sure that people will come away from listening to this with a lot more questions. Um, yeah. And hopefully some aha moments like I had while we were talking as well. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And for, you know, having these huge discussions in a, in a time right now where we're in the in-between and that this is all um, potentials that um, human potentials that previous generations didn't even have the luxury to really reflect on. Here we are being able to do that, just giving space to do that. I think it's pretty revolutionary. So thank you for the work you do. And uh, I look forward to more. That was my conversation with Aurelie Athan. Okay, when I listened back to the recording, I realized that I forgot to ask her to follow up on the point she raised about the transition to non-motherhood. But this is something I discuss at length in my book, Women Without Kids, The Revolutionary Rise of an Unsung Sisterhood, which you can pre-order now. The links are all included in the show notes. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. And don't forget to rate and review the show wherever you're listening to help more people find the series. This podcast features original music and is edited by Allo Audio. You can find them at a l o e audio.com.